<laughs> anyway, well, hey, we're glad everybody made it out today. I know it's 4th of July weekend or kind of, sort of, depends on how you want to look at that. And so we always have people that are out of town and whatnot, and we're getting ready to blow a bunch of stuff up. But as, as we get into this today, I want to I wanna kind of pick up where we left off a little bit. We've been talking about this idea of, of what it means to be in the image of God, in God's image. And we've talked about man being God's representative. And as we've looked at, we've seen that that is God's picture, how he's done things. Man initially with Adam was God's representative. And then after he fell, Israel became God's representative. And then when Jesus came, he was God's representative. But what are you and I today? We are God's representative. See, it's the same thing. It's the same cycle. And when you simplify it like that, it really helps you to understand things. Because Jesus made a lot of statements. He made a lot of commandments. And so we have to understand how and why and what if we're ever going to do this. And we looked at this aspect of not taking God's name in vain. And as I've told you guys, this isn't about cussing or anything like that. That's bad. But what it is, is like don't call yourself something that you are not. Don't claim to be a Christian, so to speak, if you're not going to live the life associated with that. And so that's the problem, is that when he told the nation of Israel, do not take the Lord's name in vain, I will not hold him guiltless, who does? That means when you go into these other lands, because remember, they wandered for years. When you go into these other lands, don't take wives from foreign countries. Don't worship other gods. Do not sacrifice. Do not do these different things that you shouldn't do. And what do they do? All that stuff. And so today, when we look at what it means to be a Christian and, and whatnot, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we taking the Lord's name in vain? In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So, what are we to do? Well, because all authority has been given to Jesus, he gives a commandment to his disciples to go and make disciples out of all the nations. Is this a nation? Yep. Is El Salvador a nation? Yep. Is Czechoslovakia a nation? I just had to work that in somehow today, right? I, I did good too. I can't spell it, but I can say it. So, you know, what are we talking about? All nations are to be what? Baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is the name. When you take the name. It's not just a religious exercise. Dunking somebody underwater does nothing. But when they receive the name upon them, what happens? Life is transformed. Now I am made in God's image. Now I am representing God. Everywhere I go, when I go to the grocery store, I'm God's imager. I'm His representative. When I go to work, I'm God's imager, His representative. When I go to the golf course, where's Paul at? He's hiding. I'm God's imager, his representative. We used to joke around like, y'all, some of you need to scrape the Jesus fish off the back of your car. Because you can't control your speed, you can't control your finger. I remember I rode with the guy in Tulsa when we first got down, the first big city I ever lived in in my life, didn't know where I was going. I got a speeding ticket, okay? I don't speed. This is their fault. It was their fault because, and I'm, I'm, I'm being truthful here, we went into a school zone. It was 7 and then afternoon school zone speed. But I didn't know they let the kids out for lunch there. They had open campus. So we were driving through around lunchtime. I'm going the regular speed limit. Cop pulls me over. It wasn't on the sign and he didn't care. But I did not know how to get to the courthouse because I had to go show my insurance identification card because I didn't have it with me. 
So I, this guy, this kid I worked with said, I'll take you down there. Y'all, I never prayed so hard in my life driving down that interstate with this kid. In and out of lanes, 95 mile an hour. And I'm thinking, why did I get the ticket? We got flipped off three times. I never got flipped off again. Like, this kid had a gift. When we're looking at representing God, everywhere we go, everything we do, we, we represent God. Now I'm in His image. But then it says, you teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. What is He talking about? What commandments is He talking about? So we need to get into that. We're to make disciples. Well, what is a disciple? It's someone that's associated with the teacher. They're known for this association because their speech and their actions reflect that individual. And we've talked about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the Herodians and all the Essenes and all these other things. But when we call somebody a disciple of Jesus, what are we calling them? We're calling them a Christian. And as we know that this was a term set apart to to make a distinction between these Jesus followers and all the others. See, they were another sect of Judaism. What we would call a fulfilled Jew. So it was a term used to identify the disciples of Jesus. But if you ask somebody, if you went around today... If we were to go out on the street and say, okay, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to answer this to the best of your ability. What is the marker that separated Jesus and his followers from all the other people? It's the number one answer you think you're going to get. Love. That wasn't hard, was it? Why do we say that? Well, look at John chapter 13. Verse 31, it says, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There it is. All we need is love, right? There's even a catchy little song that goes along with that. Yeah, I know. You're welcome. It's stuck in your head for the rest of the day. You see, Jesus and love come together. They're like peanut butter and jelly, baby. Just put them together. They're a magnificent combo. And so if we just love, we're going to be fine. That's how people will know that we're followers of Jesus, by our love. But what's interesting here is that word does not mean what you might think it means. What's interesting here is the, the person of which we're loving might not be who you're thinking it is. And the other side of that is, is he said it's a new commandment, which is interesting. Because it also is an old commandment. If you go to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17, it says, You shall not hate your brother and your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear his sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. In the book of Leviticus, what is going on here? What, what, what do we associate with Leviticus? The commandments, right? The Levitical law. Those are the terms that we associate with that. And when we read those, we're like, okay, well who is this written to? The nation of Israel. Some people use small bottles of water. I don't. I'll give that to you. We, we associate this with the nation of Israel because that's who it was written to. And it was commandment from God. Okay, what are they to do? They're to not hate your brother. You are to rebuke your neighbor. You shall not take vengeance or bear grudge against who? The children of your people. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now here's the question. 
Who are the people he's referring to? It was the Jews. The commandments were given to Israel. Who is the brother? Who is the neighbor? Who is the children of your people a reference to? It's to Israel. Those people that were in covenant relationship with God. You are to not hate them. You are to rebuke them. Do you realize that a rebuke is a good thing? Rebuke just means correction. Do you not rebuke your children from time to time? Of course you do. You know, he's not talking about you are to love the Philistines as yourself. The Girgashites, the Amalekites. He didn't say that. Who are they? They are the world. You see, you had God's people, His representative on the earth, and then you had everybody else. He never once told them to go in there and just love them into submission. What did He tell them to do? Wipe them out. Don't marry their daughters. Don't worship their gods. Why? They will draw your heart away from Me. This idea of loving the world is not from God. Now we mistake this, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that is true. He loved the whole world and what did He do for them? Gave them an opportunity of a way out. This commandment in Leviticus is sort of a reference to the one that Jesus gave in John. In fact, you can associate the two very closely. Now, a second part that everybody always turns to when I ask, well, what separates a Christian, a believer? What makes them known to the world from anybody else? This is the other part they go to. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. You guys will be familiar with the story. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10, we'll start in verse 25. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Now, don't you like how Luke went out of his way to make sure we knew it was a lawyer? Right? I don't know that he does that with any other. He didn't say, oh yeah, the guy that was like carving in the mines the other day came up to ask Jesus a question. A certain lawyer. Because as soon as you read that, you're like, whatever comes after it makes complete sense. I get this. He stood up and tested him. And if this was in the Message Bible, it would also say sent him a bill. But that's besides the point. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now this is a good question. Because it's a question that we should all ask. Lord, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? But we know the motive behind the question is impure because he's testing him. You see the difference? It can be asked the same question, but motive matters. Let's go on. He said to him, what is written in the law, what is your reading of it? So he answered, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, all your strength, and with your, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. We just read part of that, right? And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, you notice he wants to justify himself. Now, when you hear the word justify, what do you think? It's what Jesus does for us. We have been justified by the work that God has done. We have been made right. What is he trying to do? Justify himself. So what do we do when we make bad decisions? We try to justify our bad decisions. 
right? We try to make excuses. If we just own our bad decisions, we start making a lot less of them. So he tries to justify himself, and he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounding him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now let's stop for a minute. Now, when it says neighbor, who is my neighbor, what do you think that's a reference to? It would be a fellow Jew. Because what was it in the Old Testament? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? Those that are in covenant relationship with, with God. So it's a fellow Israelite. So a certain man goes down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which is literal because it is down to Jericho. He falls among thieves, which is commonplace. They strip him down, they beat him, they wound him, and they leave him half dead. What does a half dead person look like from a distance? Looks like a full dead person. You don't know. How can you tell the difference? You've got to get up close. So you don't know the difference at all. But as Jesus is telling you, he's not giving an allegory or anything like that because this was commonplace. Everybody who went from Jerusalem to Jericho, you did not travel by yourself because there were robbers on that road and clothing was a, a, a priceless heirloom, if you will. They would go after anything. You hear about this today. Kids getting shot for shoes, right? That's why you buy the clearance section shoes for your kids. Not only is it cheaper, but you keep them alive. Keep that line. I'm going to tell Isaac that. So these things were valuable to him. So this is like real world stuff that Jesus, this sounds all cute and stuff. This is stuff that they hear about all the time. Let's go on. Verse 31. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. Now, a priest and a Levite. It sounds like the start of a joke, does it? priest and a Levite walk into a bar. No, I'm sorry. The squirrels are all over the place today. Y'all got to just bear with me. All right. A certain priest came down. What does a half dead person look like from a distance? Looks like a full dead person. What does a priest not want to touch? A dead person. Why is that? They become unclean. They cannot do their job. See, we're judging this person, but he has a religious exercise that he has to uphold. Because they also believed, and wrongfully, but believed that even if their shadow were to touch the body of a dead person, they had become ritually unclean and would have to go in mikvah, sacrifice, and sometimes spend seven days through a cleaning process. Now, there is a greater law that would trump the Levitical law. It was called the law of mercy, where if you realize that this person is not dead, but, you know, they couldn't get blood on them, anything like that, the law of mercy trumps that. But you've got to get close enough to find out. For all we know, we, they see the body, and he goes to the other side. A Levite is where the priest would come from. So a priest is always a Levite, but a Levite isn't necessarily a priest. Is anybody confused thus far? Okay. A Levite can become unclean too, and they have to go through similar rituals. So what would you do if you knew that, and you assumed that that person is already dead? I'm not touching him. We've read this wrong the entire time. So there are rules. They pass by on the other side so that even their shadow would not touch them. So this task was better left to an ordinary, run-of-the-mill Israelite who could go and make fun and had no responsibilities outside of that. Okay? The rules for the Levites were not as strict as for the priests, but they would also want to avoid any defilement. Let's go to verse 33. 
But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was, the, uh, was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Now, what is a Samaritan? Samaritan was considered a half-Jew. But what were they? They were a Jew. They were still a neighbor. Now Jesus is making a point. Two of them followed the letter of the law. They were not going to risk anything. But this person went and actually checked. Now, this would get under the skin of a lawyer because they did not like the Samaritans. Remember, they didn't even go through Samaria. They would go around Samaria to get anywhere that they had to go. That's why when Jesus went there, they're like, are you sure about this? And so this is showing here that it's not a matter of simply who or what. It is like, this is anybody. But who is the neighbor? Fellowship, relationship, covenant people with God. Now, let's go back to John 13, verse 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. And so now I say to you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Who is one another? Fellowship, relationship with God. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Who is he talking about? Love for the disciples of Jesus. The neighbors now have changed. Because now that Levite, that Samaritan, that priest would no longer have that covenantal right. Because that covenant is no longer in force. This new one. Who is the believer now? Who is the neighbor now? Everybody who comes into the name of the Lord. See, it doesn't matter. And because of that, all will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, as he has loved them, which means what? He gave up his life for them, willing to do anything for them. Then the world will know that you are my disciples by what you do. Well, what did they do? We see how they brought all things together. There was persecution in Jerusalem. They brought all things together. They lived cohabitively. They sold all their possessions and brought the money together so that they could live. Do normal people do that? No. No, just cults. They also would take up alms and send them because they heard of a famine. And they would send them off to another group to try to help them out. Do normal people do that kind of stuff? No. Not necessarily. You see, it's something unique to the fellow believers that we give of what is technically ours out of our own volition. You see that in Acts 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. They had the choice, but everybody else brought their stuff together. And so they came and they lied they didn't have to, but it's what separated them. So this love for fellow believers is not somebody outside of fellowship, outside of relationship. Jesus didn't change this law. He expanded it because before it was simply for an Israelite, and now it's for every believer. But this behavior isn't what brought the name Christian on them. That's not what gave them. It was the same thing that brought attention to Jesus. See, in John chapter 14, verse 12, it says, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, 
the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Because I go to my Father, and whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So, he who believes in me means what? They have now entered into that fellowship, covenant relationship with God. And what will they do? Well, whatever Jesus did, and greater than that will they do. So, we look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. It says, men of Israel hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So Jesus told his disciples to do the exact same thing and then some that he was doing. We know that Jesus was attested by God to the people by miracles, wonders, and signs that God did through him. And what got Jesus, uh, people's attention towards Jesus? Signs, wonders, and miracles. That is what always followed him. We follow Jesus' example. So what drew attention to him? Miracles, wonders, and signs. What drew attention to Jesus' disciples? Miracles, wonders, and signs. We saw that in Acts chapter 3 with the man at the beautiful gate where he pulls him up and says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give to you, rise up and walk. In Acts chapter 5, they brought the sick out in the streets that maybe Peter's shadow will just fall on them and that they might be healed. You don't do that if it's not working because it was a lot of effort to drag some of these people out. And it wasn't just the disciples, big D. It was all the disciples being made. Because in Acts chapter 6, it was Stephen. He said he was full of faith and power. He did great signs among the people. So what tells the world that you're a follower of Jesus? The signs and wonders and miracles. You Look at what we've turned it into. It's all about love. We don't even know what that word means. We don't know why we associate that. Let me tell you something. If inside of me is the Spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead, and I'm walking in, and I see a man sitting there who can't walk, has never walked, has been sitting there every day begging for money, it takes love and compassion to reach down and pull him up. That's why Jesus, he said, he's moved with compassion. Peter and John, move with compassion. Well, let's go on. Let's look at a few more of these. Acts chapter 8. Verse 4, it says, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and it was great joy in the city. Well, why did the multitudes with one accord heed the things spoken by Philip? Hearing and seeing the miracles which he did, and then it expands upon them. So what drew attention to Philip that he was a follower of Jesus? signs, wonders, and miracles. Look at verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished people, uh, the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. Now why were they saying that? Because he was astonishing them with whatever it was he was doing. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with their sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached he be, uh, the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. What amazed Simon. He was doing something. He was getting the attention of the people. We don't know what it was or, or, or how. But certainly whatever was going on, it paled in comparison to what Philip was doing. Look at Acts chapter 9 verse 32. It says, now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, 
who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Why did they turn to the Lord? They saw the man who had been in bed for eight years, couldn't walk. And this follower of Jesus went up and said, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah heals you. Get up and make your bed. What got their attention? The signs, the wonders, the miracles. Go to verse 36. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in the coming to them. And Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the windows stood by him, weeping, uh, showing the tunics and garments which Dorca had made while she was with them. I mean, get picture this. They're like showing, look at all these things that she did. She was a wonderful person. Look at these beautiful tunics that she made. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he called out to the saints in windows, uh, when he called the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed on the Lord. Well, why did many believe on the Lord? The signs, the wonders, and miracles. Why did they call for Peter in the first place? Those signs, wonders, and miracles seem to be following him around. That's interesting. Let's look at Acts chapter 13. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, and went down to Seleucia, and from there they called, uh, sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the land of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. It said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you should be blind and not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, Then he, when, uh, when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So why did he believe? Well, he was astonished because this person whom he had been following this new person that he decided to follow had more power. Isn't that interesting? It's the signs, the wonders, and miracles once again. And in this case, it was not what we would typically call a sign, wonder, or miracle. Don't go around cursing someone with blindness, all right? Acts chapter 14, verse 8. We're going to look at a couple more. Acts 14, verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and he walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, sang in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. Now let me pause for a moment, just so you understand what's happening here. Okay? Because of this miracle taking place, they believed that the gods had come down. Now, there was a parable that had gone around at this time frame, that this had happened in times past. And they were waiting for the return of the gods to come back down. So you got... Barnabas that they're calling Zeus and Paul Hermes. Hermes was the speaker. Zeus was the action taker. Okay? 
So what it does is it gets the attention of them. But what are they doing? They're falsely associating them with their gods. So the priest comes out. The gods are among us. We're going to sacrifice in verse 14. And when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude. Why did they tear their clothes? This was a sign to everybody that they were in mourning, a torment, if you will. Okay? Crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. What useless things is he referencing? The sacrifice of these false gods and all the idols associated with it. Turn to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So are the people listening? No. They are bound and determined these are the gods we're going to sacrifice to them. So what has taken place has got the attention. Now think about that for a moment. Let's put this in our times. If something like this happens, whatever it is, does it not draw attention? Absolutely. What is the miracle that has just recently taken place in our little neck of the woods? It's been all over international news, and there's been people flocking from all over the world coming to our little neck of the woods. Kind of our neck of the woods. Down in Gower, Missouri, the nun who had died four years ago, they extracted her body. Did y'all hear about this? Am I alone? Okay, well, let me tell you the story, so I'll, I'll explain it all. This nun had died. She lived in the nunnery. They buried her at the nunnery. I don't know if that's a proper term. That's a term I use, okay? They had extracted her coffin because they were going to bury her inside of the church or wherever they were going to do it. When they did, the, the coffin had broken someone they could see inside and see that she was perfectly preserved, perfectly preserved, however you want to say that. Her clothing and everything like that. This is being called a miracle, and she is up for a possibility of being a saint. They won't just do it. There's a whole process they have to go through. So they have now put her body on display in a glass case there, and people from all over the world, Roman Catholics from all over the world, are coming in to see her, pray to her. Now, you all are looking at me stink-eyed right now, okay? I didn't make the story up. I'm just telling you what happened. Now, what is going on? Well, a supposed miracle has taken place, and they are associating it with their gods. This is the power of God. We're seeing the same thing right here. You guys see, you know, we read these things, and we're like, oh, man, nobody would ever do anything like that. We're doing it today. This just happened a couple of months ago. If you've ever been to Gower, it's about the size of Rockport. It's not much bigger, if it is bigger at all. So these things happen. The problem is, who gets credit? Let me give you another example that just happened not too long ago, okay? And I was talking about this in foundation, so you keep your mouth shut. But there was a lady, I was listening to a radio call-in show, um, and she called in, and she, she had been a Protestant and got married, converted to Roman Catholicism. And so when she did this, you know, she, she just said, I had questions, but wasn't really sure which is right. But, you know, when it's just a religion to you, you don't mind making some adjustments. Truth is not necessarily what you're seeking. 
And so what happened was, is there was a service in which you were going to getting ready to do the Eucharist. Somebody took a photo, and in that photo, there was a shining light or something in the image of, of Mary, in Virgin Mary. And so, of course, all of these people are just amazed that we saw her here, she was here, and things like that. And she's calling in, and they're talking about what a miracle this was, and how God is using that to draw the people close to Him. You know what my question was? How do you know it's Mary? We have no pictures of Mary. We don't know what Mary looked like. What if she was really tall? And this is really short, or vice versa. We don't know. They're not asking that question. They are associating it with their God. We see this all over the place. Do we not see that in our church world as well? Absolutely we do. This is where Scripture comes in. So don't be astonished at what's happening. Because even though the truth is being proclaimed, they're rejecting the truth, at least momentarily, because they are preconceived, we have got to go forward with this. Now, look at verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, when they suppose him to be dead, the odds are he was likely dead. They don't stone people and leave them alive. Okay, it's not impossible. We don't know. It doesn't really say whether he was raised from the dead or not. There is some suspicion of that. But look at verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue the faith, and saying, We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And so when they appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them, committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. Uh, from there they sailed to Antioch and from they, uh, where they had commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. So all of these things are drawing the attention of people. What has separated the disciples of Jesus from all the other groups? Were the Pharisees doing signs, wonders, and miracles? No. Were the Pharisees growing at an exponential rate? No. How about the uh, Sadducees? Were they doing signs, wonders, and miracles? No, because they didn't even believe in the supernatural. Okay? They didn't believe in angels or resurrection from the dead or anything like that. They didn't believe in it, so therefore it's not true. Okay? How about the Herodians? Do you guys hear about those, like the groups of Herodians that are still around today? No, you don't. Why is that? There was nothing to draw. But what drew people to Jesus and what drew people to Jesus' disciples? Signs, wonders, and miracles performed out of love. See, I want you to think about that. Is if we're out there trying to do all these things to draw the world to us, what things should we be doing? The works that Jesus did and greater works because he goes to the Father. You see, we've got our priorities out of whack. We don't even try that. We do try to preach compelling messages. We try to just embrace everybody where they are and just love them as they are. What if we just went around doing what they did in the book of Acts? What if we just gave that a shot? You know, we haven't tried that one yet. Something to think about. You see, it's not what we thought it was. If we're his image bearer, and he says, go and make disciples of all nations, and he says, do the works that I did in greater works, how come we're not doing any of that? We'll pick up this next week. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it is true. We thank you that it guides our lives in every aspect. We thank you, Lord, that it is truly what you have left for us to know all about who you are, what you've done, and what you expect from us, Lord. And I just thank you that you just quicken our hearts, Lord, to just be on the move with you, to do what you have called us to do, to be your representatives on this earth, Lord. That we have opportunity each and every day to share the gospel, Lord. And I just pray that you convict our hearts that we actually do it. Not just talk about it, but do it. Lord, that you would be glorified in every aspect of our lives and every single thing that we do. We just thank you. It's in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Have a great week. Have a happy 4th of July.